Welcome back, everyone. It is Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And uh, welcome to another installment of Scott Tember, the celebration of the late, great Tony Scott and his films of the 1990s. Uh, we have a great film lined up for today and a terrific guest. Uh, he is a Sao Paulo-based writer, podcaster, host of a film podcast called Pop Cult. Uh, we are honored to have our friend Gus Lanzetta in the studio with us hanging out today. Gus, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I would probably never watch this movie if you guys hadn't asked me to, to talk about it. And I'm, I'm glad because I, I really liked it. <laughs> uh, the, the last time someone had said anything about Enemy of the State to me at all, I think was when it was on Blockbuster. Uh, right in, when it came out on VHS is the la last time I thought about it. So uh, thank you. Um, when, uh, when Aaron, I think, asked me, whoever was running the Twitter account asked me. <laughs> uh, that would be about, me, yeah. So guy. yeah, Aaron, um, about like, oh, we're doing this Tony Scott special. Is there any movie you want to talk about? And I was like, yes, I love Domino. And he was like, okay, no, uh, but it's either <laughs> Enemy of the State or this other movie. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe Enemy of the State is more it. like my deal because I, I like uh, internet and, and, and how your government spies on everyone through it um so <laughs> i thought i was like yeah let's talk about that i think this makes now twice that you've been denied an opportunity to talk about uh your beloved domino because I, <laughs> exactly. I think if i remember correctly you know you were uh on uh, a terrific episode of uh our friend jesse hawkins podcast junk filter talking about uh the sydney lumet film uh find me guilty with mm -hmm. vin diesel because yep. i know that you're a big fast and the furious fan and i know you're a big yes. domino fan and he had already done a Domino episode, if if I'm not mistaken. No, he had done a Tony Scott episode recently, so he hadn't okay. done Domino yet. But <laughs> got he, it. So, That's what it is. So this is what happens. Like I'm not a huge Domino movie. It's just like I've watched that movie. No one else watched it, and I kind of liked it. I watched it a few times, like two or three times, and that's yeah. it. But then, like he was like, when he invited me on his podcast, he was like, "Is there any movie you you want people to watch? You think not enough people watched it?" So I just opened my Plex library and, and started going through it alphabetically, and then Domino came up when I was in the D's and he was like, ah, I did Tony Scott, uh, uh, re recently. So then I, I went forward and find me guilty was F and we kind of did that. <laughs> but then when you <laughs> asked me specifically about Tony Scott, I was like, oh, this is my chance. This is, and maybe this guy's asking me cause he knows that I'm going to say Domino cause he listened to junk filter. If, if, um, if it, but no, you just, you just wanted to deny me again. <laughs> <laughs> and now it looks like I'm obsessed with this film that I haven't watched in years. But I remember liking it. <laughs> Tom Waits is in it. It sounds conspiratorial, yeah. Gus. I have to say, like you're it being does. targeted. That's right. Or, or, or it, or it sounds like I'm being paid by. I think I don't remember Universal <laughs> did that. I don't know. Like someone's paying. He's like, oh, we need that. It's back on streaming. We need people to watch it. You're yeah. an op. We figured it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> the, just... the Tony Scott estate actually pays me to do it because like, oh, he, he gets some some backhand on that. <laughs> that I could get behind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, if if Domino had been made ten years earlier, we'd be talking about it right now. But I don't know. I think if it was made ten years after, we would be talking about it. Because mm, in I mean, some ways, be... like like this movie, like Enemy of the State, it is pretty prescient and pretty much about something that no one cared about at the time, and now everyone cares about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, we've we've already said it. We haven't formally introduced the the film oh, yeah. for the episode, but uh, we are indeed talking about Tony Scott's 
1998 uh, espionage surveillance state thriller Enemy of the State today, starring Will Smith and Gene Hackman. Um, who, and a boatload of other people. And a boatload of other people. <laughs> I was shocked. I like when shocked. when the the credits came up at the start. I I I saw a couple of names like Scott Con. They were very nineties. But then <laughs> yeah. it was like the Busey kid, straight from Shasta. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Seth Green. Like it was the most nineties ass casting I ever saw. Yes, absolutely. Seth Jamie Green Kennedy and Jack and Black. Jamie Kennedy in the same oh yes movie. yes and Jack Black like. Long hair, Jack Black. And I must say now that we mentioned Jack Black, we might get into more of this later, but I watched a completely different movie just because of Jack Black, because I watched something else with him that made me think as soon as he came up on screen, I was like, oh, he's actually a good guy. And I watched the whole movie waiting for that scene where we would know that, oh, he's actually the good guy. He's helping out Rachel or whatever. And it's like, it never came. I was like, oh, what am I thinking of then? (laughs) What were you thinking of? I don't. I still don't know. But but Saving there's Silver a movie Man. in my head where he's actually Brill's contact because oh at the God. beginning of the movie he's just playing so dumb of like oh, maybe maybe it's nothing maybe nothing's going on and I was like ah oh, good he's playing a little bit dumb but there's some you know he can deny it later but no he's just a very dumb guy. <laughs> His character is so confounding because he has we're jumping way ahead but I'll yeah. I'll just say this briefly he has that moment sort of at the end of the film when you see him press record when they're having that conversation in the van sort of right before the climactic you know shootout at the end and you're like I had the same thought where I was like oh what's he up to is he like does he actually not agree with what's happening and is this his attempt to sort of like salvage some sense of like morality that he may have left and like no they they cut to the end of the the film when they're interrogating sort of the remaining guys that are alive and it's Jack Black and I think Seth Green and uh no and it's, it's Jack Black and and, and Jamie Kennedy and Jamie, Jamie Kennedy, Kennedy. Yep. see they're interchangeable in my mind <laughs> completely um especially because there's this that comment of like a hey, uh are you guys communications guys like no they're ops just look at their hair and it's like well yes. Seth Green has the same hair and he's communications yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I also feel like Seth Green and Jamie Kennedy like in in a lot of movies play the like really like intensely well-versed like media tech guy well they like, play I, jamie kennedy in scream he he came up yes. with that he, yes. he is that totally type. that and then as 1, soon as scream percent. came out they were like oh we need a jamie kennedy type yes and seth green i feel like recreated that character in uh what am i thinking of the italian job i was gonna say buffy <laughs> Oh, and Buffy. Yes, and Buffy. <laughs> that, yeah, that Completely. Too. Yeah. And then, Anyways, and then Jamie I'm, Kennedy I'm would digressing. go on to create his own uh, sort of micro surveillance state with the Jamie Kennedy experiment. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And I think yeah. he's, uh, he, I, all I know of him, he seems to be a terrible person. But um, also, he, <laughs> he hasn't been done justice in the world because everyone remembers Punked as the bad. Uh, prank show, but it's like yeah. no, the bad like there was a bad prank show before the bad prank show, and, and that it was, was Jamie, Jamie Kennedy Kennedy's. experience. Yes, the title tells you as much that it's going exactly. To be just this experience has not horrible. gone well. It should be shut down. <laughs> this experiment will bring no good results. The, these are experiments, just like Nazi doctors were running experiments. This is not <laughs> good. So right, Jamie Mengele, we'll call him. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> oh. God, uh, and then his wife had to get him a part in her show because he couldn't do anything. And so he had to be in the ghost whisperer. 
Oh my <laughs> that's god, right. that's right. Yes, he was in Ghost Whisperer. I forgot about that show. Uh, I, you know, I will say though, and maybe this will, you know, get some listeners to abandon ship early. But I am, I am a a vocal apologist for Malibu's Most Wanted. I think that movie is actually pretty <laughs> funny. <laughs> I don't remember that movie. I don't he, remember that he movie. Ba- he's like, a, he's a rich kid who like uh, is really just has a lot of love for hip hop culture. And so he kind of dresses like a gangster and has a bunch of other rich white friends who dress gangster and they like hang out at like the Malibu mall. And like his dad is running for Congress. And so he's got this giant mansion with like a private beach. Um, And then there's a, a kidnapping scenario in which they decide to kidnap him and hold him hostage. And it's Tay Diggs and Anthony Anderson. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they're like, Tay Diggs, it, another it, great nineties, you know, figment yeah. of our imaginations. Terry Crews shows up for a minute too, has some like Ooh. really good lines. So like it's pre, it's, pre, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, is it white ladies? It's not white ladies. White chicks. White, white chicks. chicks. Yeah, it is. Which it, is very popular probably... here in Brazil. It's a huge movie in Brazil. <laughs> really? It is. Yeah. I know it's, it's, I don't know why, but it is. It is. It's just We were huge. just talking about that movie literally like a night ago because we were talking about the Wayans brothers. Um, what a family. What a family. What a family. We were arguing sort of who was who uh who had the most sort of like fame and cultural imprint and I was saying that I felt like it was Damon Wayans at the time because at the time he was really one of the biggest stars coming out of like in living color second to Jim Carrey and and then I was remembering, oh, but like Sean and Marlon had like a run where they were doing a lot of a lot of kind of like parody films. And, yeah. you know, so those the scary movies uh, are really popular here. So I probably mm. say them. But at the same time, um, my wife and kids is one of the three big comedies of all time here. Like the, the three big shows you must know about this, cause, you know, Brazil is, is a mostly black country. So like. Mm-hmm. The cultural status of my wife and kids, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and Everybody Hates Chris. That mm. is, those are the shows that everyone will know. Doesn't matter if they're uh-huh. poor wow. or rich. Everyone knows th- those shows, and you know they'll air reruns still today, and and you know they're huge. That's wow. wild. What about Living Single? I don't think it ever aired here at the time, so we didn't watch. Like we didn't get all shows back then, like especially before cable was huge here. We didn't like. I don't think ever anywhere we could watch like Martin or mm, uh, yeah. the Bernie Mac show. Some the of those Mac things show. I only found out after the internet. But those yeah. those were on broadcast TV here, so they got huge. That's so interesting. But you know, you know and speaking of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, it has starred our enemy of the state. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Will Smith at like the height of his career height. here um, was was interested to read about this film enemy of the state and apparently you know he was not um uh, well maybe not not the first choice but there were other actors being considered at the same time among them mel gibson and tom cruise no this what? this movie does not work as well with a white lead that's no, no absolutely not yeah a thousand percent that's the the racial politics of this thing or something i want to get into because it's something that tony you know he never addresses explicitly except maybe in like crimson tide but it's something that is is persistent throughout the the back half of the '90s, from Crimson Tide on, including in the fan, the the sort of dynamic between uh, like whiteness and policing and black men, specifically like black men in positions of power, whether that's in the military, whether that's uh, you know like celebrity athlete, uh, or whether it's you know a, a black man 
in like upper class DC bourgeois society, you know, like outside of like, uh, you know, like like the, the Baltimore projects or something like that, you know, and, and he is a man of of affluence and he's a lawyer and has like a nice house, lives in suburbia. But there is absolutely like uh, uh, an element of like racializing this, right? Like the police state against a black man. That's very, very important for it to have. Yeah. And and that was something I thought about while watching the movie of like how much of this is intentionally there and how much of this is just me watching it in 2021 when we are aware of so many of these things. Because the movie is, is, is weirdly coy about it. Like it never addresses it head on like his wife works at the aclu and stuff and she never brings up the racial element of the solve like being against surveillance and stuff like she never goes like oh you think they're gonna believe a black guy like you and yep. and yeah. like the closest i think they come to it is actually with the mobsters because the mobsters call him an eggplant and i, I yes. had never yep. heard that slur before but i immediately understood because i've seen eggplants and i know what colors they are inside and out and i don't know how how much it can be upset about racism against italians because first of all didn't really happen to me. I'm, I've never, you know, my family was never <laughs> subject to that. You know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-Italian discrimination. Like we yeah. had bigger racisms to deal with here. Um, and also because I was like, look, every uh, Italian guy is fat and sweaty. And I, I looked at me and I was sweaty and eating something and fat and looking <laughs> at the guys like, hey, maybe they're right. <laughs> I have to say, I... I agree with you on the movie being really coy about this this sort of like racialized perspective. I I actually think that this movie effectively erases it. <laughs> like effectively mm -hmm. erases any sort of racialized reading uh of the sort of surveillance projects of national and global security. And and so casting Will Smith is kind of the perfect the perfect move there because Will Smith, particularly in the nineties, he represents this idea that a structural material influence on your trajectory or your success forward is non-existent, right? That those things do not actually matter. You could have all the, the cards stacked against you in the world, but if you are talented, uh, play by the rules and, you know, uh, work hard, you will be successful. And Will Smith sort of embodies all of that in just his his figure alone. And his character in this movie does as well. Because yes. he's yeah. like, I grew up without a father and I got everything I wanted and I'm not going to let it go. And it's like, yeah, but those white people sold you out instantly. <laughs> like, instantly. They have yes, no allegiances towards you. Completely. Yes. Well, and there's even a line too that I... I thought, you know, kind of embody the sort of like 90s neoliberal idea where when he's he's kind of arguing with Hackman at the kind of like the, you know, tail end of the movie here, he says something along the lines of, I worked hard for my life. I'm not going to let them take it away. You know, like I, I worked hard for everything I got. And I was like, isn't, doesn't that really not matter? Like the, just the fact that these people are like ruining your life, whether you like, you know, had $10 in the bank or like, you know, 10 million like this is an issue like this sucks yeah like yeah exactly like the italian guys know the italian guys know like well they're using you just like they use the jewish lawyers and the everyone else like it's their interests it, yes. those are the things that matter and it kind of touches on that as well of like they can take everything away from you so you don't have it it's not yours if they can take it away from you so it's yes. like if you are no one to 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 the world around you if you don't have credit cards and a job and a reputation well then what do you have 
Like none of these things matter. Precisely. And no one uses cash in this movie, which is totally insane for 1998. <laughs> yes. And we, we had this conversation too, you know, like at the point that his credit cards get declined and apparently like his banks get like completely drained and his bank accounts get completely drained. He's still able to like buy a ticket on the ferry and take cabs and like, you know, yeah, do everything he needs to do. It is that he has some cash because like, in 1998, maybe you'd have like 300 bucks on you because he need cash sometimes. But this right, movie but we never right. see it used. It because it needs us to be living in the world much more like today, which is, oh, you need credit cards and computers for everything and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And, you know, just it fits with the what the movie wants to show you. But I get why, like, in 1998, you'd go like, well, just pay for we'll pay with cash. Totally. <laughs> write a, a check. check a my check. dude, yes. It's going to take days. He's got a checkbook. He's <laughs> yeah. wearing a tan overcoat that most certainly contains a checkbook in his yes pocket. he is wearing suspenders yeah he has <laughs> he has multiple checkbooks he has a yeah. checkbook he doesn't have <laughs> just the little paper part he has the <laughs> leather bound place where he puts in a new checkbook every month yeah yeah he, he's the kind of guy who goes like honey we need more carbon paper <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm getting flashback to my childhood of my dad like actually going and buying carbon paper for, <laughs> yes. for his checkbook. Just buying it in bulk. Um, yes. Gus, do you think that you might, before we get too deep into this, take a crack at uh, offering a very brief synopsis of Enemy of the State? I, okay. I don't want you to concern yourself too much with the particularities of it because it's a very kind of windy plot and a lot of individual points, but you know, if if you were to give us like a back of the box kind of synopsis of what the movie is about and, and who some of the principal characters are. OK, so Will Smith is a very su- successful D.C. labor lawyer who likes to use blackmail to win cases. Uh, and he buys this blackmail from his former uh, mistress who went to college with him and his wife. His wife is a very uh, successful lawyer for the ACLU. They live in an awesome house. They, they got money. Um, and then. Uh, a guy who he went to college with, played by Jason Lee, again, very 90s, just run into Will Smith, apropos of nothing, in just the biggest Dills Ex Machina ever, uh, and <laughs> and has some compromat on John Voight, who is a CIA NSA guy who killed uh, uh, a congressman because the congressman would not them let them pass the Telecommunications Act uh, that sounds like it was the proto patriot act kind of mm-hmm. like we can surveil everyone in this country so uh, there's this huge coincidence uh the package is a video that jason lee has because he's a bird watcher and he accidentally films this thing oh, and this is the most 90 thing, 90s things as well he saves a copy of the dv tape he has because the, the nsa finds the, the tape but he makes a copy of it into his computer so he digitizes it all and then he saves it in this PCMCIA card, which it, maybe it's a storage card. Those existed in the in that format, not very uh, common. Uh, and he hides the card, not very well, in the Turbo Express, which is the 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 portable video game no one had in in yeah. the U.S., which is the portable version of the PC Engine. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and then he drops that without Will, Will Smith seeing it in his bag and now the NSA wants Will Smith because Will Smith has the tape they need to destroy and Will Smith doesn't know what's going on and he has to run away and they kill they kill his former mistress they cancel his credit cards they ruin his life and he meets up with this former NSA guy who hates the NSA who's Gene Hackman and they're like we're gonna 
do like the Viet Congs and we're going to take their <laughs> weapons against them. And then the movie and oh, and then he gets the mobster who don't like him to kill the NSA guys who don't like him. And now, and now the paper gives him a huge, he like half of the first page is like, he, <laughs> lawyers actually cleared. It's like, no to one cares. No one yeah, of course you're going to have front page news about him killing someone. And then a footnote in page 34 going like, hey, actually that guy cleared actually. It was not him. <laughs> not him. Yeah, maybe like not even a retraction of the previous. Uh, well, it's not article. a retraction if you're just saying what the police said. You just gotta hey, maybe go like, oh, the police now say they maybe were wrong. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they were wrong about a couple of things, but they were right about X Y Z. You know, <laughs> they were right about actually these uh, NSA guys are not NSA guys, and this, these mob guys kill them because they're crazy. <laughs> you've got to have you've got to have the full front page story in uh in a conspiracy movie like this to let everyone know that everything's good. Um I was, you know, speaking of the writers, I was interested to see um the the writer for this film is a man named David Marconi who uh is Italian guy, so he can do he can do those Italian things. He right. can do he the does jokes the... and the stereotypes. Okay. <laughs> he, he we let him. We the Lanzettas, we let him. The Lanzettas give Marconi <laughs> permission to uh to defame in some ways the the Italian peoples. But uh uncredited rewrites on the script. Uh ready for this. One of them, Aaron Sorkin, because of course it was. Of course. Because you know he touched every 90s script after a few good men in 92 yeah. and like, the dialogue just... in this movie kind of like they should be walking and talking also uh uncredited rewrites uh henry bean who along with michael tolkien wrote bill duke's uh deep cover from 1992 with Lawrence fishburne and oh, jeff yeah. goldblum wow yep and of and here's a fun one too the the last person uncredited rewrite and this might not come as any surprise to anybody tony gilroy who's responsible for the scripts for all three of the Bourne movies. Oh, okay. Yes, this is yep. this is the same mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah, yes. also also the director and writer of Michael Clayton mm-hmm. and uh, I love that movie. Yeah. Me too. Fantastic film. Unbelievable movie. But beyond that, you know, some of the players in this movie, we've already talked about the 90s actors that just like populate every frame of this. Apparently, you know, according to the casting director, everybody was just champing at the bit to get an opportunity to hang out with Gene Hackman on set. So like And he's is, with very few scenes that have other people other than Will Smith. He clearly yes. had a couple of days. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not a couple of days cuz there's a lot of uh, uh outside shots there, but you mm-hmm. know, location shots but you didn't have him for more than a week. Yeah. And I, the yeah, hypoglycemia he probably written into the script for like he can't be around too long. He can't. Right. We ha- just so that he gets a chance to eat pretzels he on. Eat pretzels. Yeah, a lot of his <laughs> scenes have to be him eating pretzels, chips, uh, and it's he has to. We, we have to write the crankiness in. The, the character has <laughs> to be right. cranky. Gene is super cranky. <laughs> yeah. it, it totally works. It though. totally works, and I think that you know it, it's very clear that he was the principal actor cast for this type of film because it's just like. It works so perfectly. I think it's a, an incredible homage, it, visually in a lot of parts, but also just in the casting of Hackman to Coppola's The Conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just like, you know, one of those kind of, it's like poetry. It rhymes, Gus, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, like Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. And bad poetry. Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> bad poetry rhymes. That's yeah. true. And right. speaking of Br- bad... Brill's, Brill's a funnier character than we've ever had before. If we can get him working, you know, he's the key yeah, to all I, of like, this. Yeah, so. like... At, at some point in this movie, I was like thinking about how you, would you turn it into a franchise? Because now that's all studios do. And yes. at, at some point I was like, well, Will Smith is the franchise. But then by the end, I was like, no, 
this is Gene Hackman's franchise. This is Brill. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is Brill against the government every time. Th- like he's old born. That's what I was thinking. I was I I wrote the same thing down that it's like if they wanted to continue the Bourne series, what they need to do is have him be like a rogue asset who now works in like the shadows, helping like regular guys against the surveillance state and against exactly. Uh, the government. And then you can yes. switch up the main actor so you don't have to like uh, get him a pay raise after three movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can have just like new young people working for Gene Hackman. I'd watch the shit out of I that. I would too. Yeah, me too. It's. I think that he's like he's a brilliant point of casting here, and then also, of course, uncredited at the very beginning of this, the the congressman who's assassinated uh, by John Voight at all is uh, the great Jason Robards, who won uh, his first Oscar for All the President's Men, playing Bill Bradley. Sidney uh, Lumet. So uh, it, all, it all connects. <laughs> there all you connects. Go. Um, but yeah, uncredited. He's, you know, one of his final film performances. I think his actual final film performance was uh, Magnolia before he passed away in 2000. Oh, he, what, who's he in that? He's Earl Partridge. He's, he's, oh, the, he's the guy the, who's the passing a, away. Right. The yeah. ailing sort of father of gig, Tom Cruise. Because she gig just stays in bed. Good. Mm-hmm. Yes. I like those Cushy parts. Gig. That's right. <laughs> it's it's a lot like Hackman getting to eat pretzels for a yes. couple days on set. You know, exactly. They've been working for decades. They know. They're like, look, they've earned it. Honestly, like I can't. <laughs> you can't fault Gene Hackman for anything. You're like, you know what? By this point, c- he's been in so many great movies. Like you, you no, you, he can sit and eat pretzels in my movie for two million dollars. Absolutely. Those scenes work. I don't care if he was not putting effort into it because, like, the meritocracy is fake, as we mentioned. I don't yeah. care. Like the movie works. If 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 it was like uh, phoning it in, I don't care. You got it, buddy. Here's your money. It makes sense that he has little patience for nearly everything that he encounters. So he he Hackman is is working it all into the character seamlessly, and it's it's a, a wonderful performance. And as Aaron said in the middle of of the elevator scene between the two of them, Aaron turned to me and he said, "Nobody shouts like Hackman." Mm-hmm. Nobody shouts yeah. like Hackman, and, and he gets to do it for like the entirety of this. There was like a, a a Twitter post where someone asked like, "Who are the great like on screen like shouters? Like not screamers, not scream queens, like the good shouting actors." And of course, like Sam Jackson's name came up a bunch. But I was like, Hackman, Hackman, you know, especially in his later career here, like this movie, uh, Heist, the the David Mamet picture from two thousand one. He is sh- screaming, like shouting at Danny DeVito for the first 45 minutes of that movie. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Old Jim Hackman has that great old guy screaming of like, your vocal cords clearly have a texture to them now. Yes. So it kind of gives you, because like Samuel L. Jackson, he does the same yelling since he was young. It's like, he can project, he can get yes. some powerful voice out there. Gene Hackman is just yelling and he's, his voice sounds good. <laughs> and that, yeah, thing, it, that it, it gives terrific. a texture, right? It does. So it, it's great. Um, but you know, there's a couple of things like his character seems to me like he was written to die in the third act, which would be like the most predictable thing of like he mm-hmm. dies to save Will Smith because he has nothing to lose. But at some point they change that and it's like he still acts like the men with nothing to lose. But here is his family and he will live through the end of this movie. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's, <laughs> yes. it's really weird. Completely. But going back to the first scene, there's something I wrote down here is that kind of like the congressman who dies is supposed to be kind of like the voice of reason-ish among the powerful. Um, And he's talking about how, you know, national security isn't everything, blah, blah, blah. But then he goes like, everyone hates us. No, they go, we're the most, the richest, most successful country in the world. 
and that's why everyone hates us. And I was like Ugh. sitting back and going like, that's not why we hate you. That's totally no, not why we hate you. We, <laughs> we don't you. hate the Dutch. Like they got rich <laughs> off colonizing everyone and they're super free and rich. And we don't hate them because they like kind of like they keep it to themselves. They stole a bunch from us yep. and the Congo and everyone else. But like nowadays they kind of go like, oh, we can't get away with that anymore. But <laughs> we hate you guys because you still want to get away with that shit. Yes. Yes. But on top of just like the, the surveillance state, element of this being incredibly prescient and like even prophetic to a certain regard you know uh these sentiments are the ones that i was like kind of in awe of because certainly you know they were things that have been espoused by you know intelligence officials and and government uh employees and and congress people for you know an entire generation but they get it so right you know this like kind of combatant posturing and position between even the voices of reason saying like they hate me because i'm popular they hate me because i'm rich yeah. you know like that kind of shit and then also you know the john Boyd like character this, of course you have to spy on these people but it doesn't look good on us right <laughs> right it's a bad look it's like i feel like people just like don't understand us <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, that is the sentiment that is behind everything 1998, right? This Gen X art that is the revolt of white rich people at something, but that, you know, the powers that be make sure it's not nothing clear. So it's like, you can hate the powers in the system, but as soon as you go, the, the government killed someone because they didn't like their politics, you go, that's a conspiracy theory. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the, yes. This is something we were talking about the other day where it's like, you can sound like a conspiracy theorist just by stating like, five things in a row that the cia has done and has admitted to yeah you open the cia wikipedia page and you go like let me just say that and these are things they admitted because they can't hide it anymore yes and we've been socialized exactly as you said we have been socialized to render those people as like loons in the sort of like you know, mm -hmm. fabric of society. The people that just like plainly state what the CIA does and has done are are understood to be insane. It's the the point that you make about John Voigt's kind of narrativizing this this imperial effort on their part um, is one I want to come back to because I don't think we can quite overstate how plainly this movie was uh laying out the way that this story is propagandized at a time when you know 2021 we look back on that now and we're like yeah we know this now we know this story we've been hearing this story for decades right but in 1998 like this was not a thing that we were uh that we were as literate in and, you know, we had we had the Gulf War and we had, uh, you know, certain exploits with Iraq and all mm -hmm. of the things that we were doing covertly and, and overtly there over the course of of the 90s that like sort of allowed us to to germinate this narrative of like world police bringing democracy and doing a liberty, doing a liberty as a, yeah. you know, those Serbians, the they needed those bombs dropped on. They them. needed right. them. They needed them. But but in 1998, I was reflecting as we were watching this last night. And I, I, I was really I was really kind of amazed if you're talking if we're talking about, you know, prophetic at how directly and plainly this movie states that 
propagandized narrative from the yep. opening shots of the film. Yeah. And it really is, if you situate yourself in a 1998 audience, it really is kind of a, a remarkable thing to be seeing yeah. that played out in a blockbuster, like a mainstream blockbuster at the time. I mean, they even no. go as far yeah. as to say at one point, like, I think it's Barry Pepper's character, one of the other kind of like haircuts in the movie, you know, who like works alongside Voight. But they say something like, uh, oh, know, he's oh, Voight's lover, right? Yeah. Clearly, <laughs> the young boy he fucks yes. instead of Anagon. <laughs> That's right. Yes. But but they say something along the line of like everybody cares about civil liberties and and personal freedoms until the bombs start going off or yes. until something blows up yeah. in their neighborhood. Which right. is and, totally what they said to get the Patriot Act passed. Of like, absolutely, you know, a thousand percent. Three years later, that's exactly what we were hearing. Yeah, and then and the and the the opposition to those guys, especially in the U.S., it was still the whole uh, Jeffersonian like, oh, you can't trade away liberty for freedom or for mm -hmm. safety, and it's like. No, that's not the point. Is even if these things were making you safer, which they're not, you can't fucking kill other people because of something someone else did. You can't no. just go killing people all over the world. And that's where this this movie has a really interesting place, I think, in our understanding of it as a certain type of propaganda. Because while the message is very much one that is sort of this well-tread liberal critique of surveillance and the overreach of government, it is still doing the work of, you know, normalizing this landscape of global surveillance, right? And normalizing this idea of, of violence inward, outward, you know, on individuals against against other global powers, et cetera, that that violence is necessary. Like, this is hurting me more than you. <laughs> that kind of abusive exactly. yeah. bullshit. Don't yes. make me do this. Totally. Uh, this, you don't know how much this hurts me. <laughs> a thousand percent. I would actually almost even call it more of a libertarian positioning mm. on the surveillance state. Yep. Because it, it feels a little bit cranky you know like I, I know that tony scott you know still had several years ahead of him was still making very interesting art and still examining this like surveillance state idea you know he does it again to good effect with like a sci-fi twist in deja vu obviously his follow-up to this film spy game is about like the intelligence community and and some of the interminglings of that as well but this one is is I think very individualized to the point of like I mean even the last words that Larry King says right like you have no right to come into my home you have no right to like uh, unless you're my landlord <laughs> and I don't get to own <laughs> right land. You do whatever you want then you're allowed then, yeah but then I'm destitute but there's there's also like almost kind of a a critique of the liberal posturing of like support for the surveillance state too at the beginning of this movie right where you've got regina king's character will smith's wife who is calling these new surveillance state practices and this new like legislation fascist and you know rightly so you know talking about like the abandoning of civil liberties in the name of national security but will smith says a thing that is echoed a lot by a lot of people in liberal media spheres and also like, you know, even as recently as after like one six after the Capitol riots here in the States, you know, where people were like, well, I'm not a criminal. I have nothing to hide. So it doesn't matter. It's it doesn't affect me. And, uh, you know, they'll 
if you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to worry about. Baby, listen to this fascist gas bag. There is that boredom and freedom have always existed in a in a very precarious balance. And when buildings start blowing up, people's priorities tend to change. He's got a point there, sweetie. Bobby, he is talking about ending personal privacy. Do you want your phone tapped? I'm not planning on blowing up the country. Oh, I know. We'll just tap the criminals. We won't suspend the civil rights of the good people. Right. Then who decides which is which? And now that we're talking about it, uh, I was thinking back about that Jack Black thing and maybe why I was thinking that he would turn out to be the mole or something. Mm -hmm. It's because of Gene Hackman's character as well. Is that nowadays, if this movie was made, they would have a mole. Because the point of this movie today would be the problem is bad actors like John Voight. Yes. It's the surveillance state is not the problem because we have accepted it now. We can't really say that we should go back to pre 9 11, uh, uh, you know, a lesser surveillance state. Mm-hmm. So yes. you would have to have a mole and you would have Gene, Gene Hackman be the same character he is because the whole thing is that he only turned against the government when the government turned against him. And he was like, right. I was one of the good guys. <laughs> and he's yeah. like, and there's kind of a tongue in cheek kind of thing where they make his backstory be that he was in Iran running guns to the Taliban <laughs> to, in Afghanistan. To the, to the I, was like, I was screaming. This is, this is, this is screaming. actually, this is good on you, Aaron Sorkin at all. <laughs> yes. No, and this no, is the that funny line thing. did not come from Aaron Sorkin. No way. <laughs> no, Aaron for sure. A percent did not. <laughs> no, I feel like Aaron Sorkin's the one who wrote the, if if I'm not doing anything wrong, I've got nothing to worry about yes. line. Like, that's oh, all again, the West a man is. that, uh, a man that does all kinds of things wrong that, if he were not rich, he, he this man was busted taking cocaine into a plane. Yes. Yep. What non-white man in the United States of America could do that and have nothing wrong happen to him? And everyone go, he has a substance abuse problem. He was just hungover and forgot that coke was there. A thousand percent. Well, and he's made an entire career now out of writing about like his issues with substance abuse and and you know his his. Seeking of recovery, like the That's Matthew Perry writing about it, while hot. it. Yeah, that is how he shows his regret. Right, exactly. It's, it's about remorse. It's always about remorse. It's always about. And the repentance. woman's job is to hug you when you realize you were wrong. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. We've got it all figured out, gang. No, you're so right, though, Gus. <laughs> oh, that this poor, is like these poor guys. It's just so hard being them. <laughs> it is. It's really hard. It's but, so hard. But you're absolutely right, Gus. That this is like you know, this is like the frog in the boiling beaker kind of situation, right? Where nowadays we would have to emphasize the fact that the intelligence community is not the bad guy. It's the bad guy in the intelligence community. So I actually think this movie is already saying that. It kind of does. It kind of does. This film even more prophetic than, than we're already giving it credit for, because how does the movie end? The movie ends with Will Smith sitting in his living room, flipping the channels on his TV and then suddenly being attacked he shows up by on the TV. Yeah. Yeah. T- taken by some images that Gene Hackman's character has clearly wired through his system and has a camera that he keeps looking up at and, and is sending him a message of, Hey friend, like wish you were here, like good luck, whatever. And sending him photos of his hairy legs, of his hairy legs so. in water. Uh, <laughs> Again, on a beach. I mean, I'm going to come back to some other gay overtones that I picked up in this movie. <laughs> it's um, a Tony Scott movie. They're all gay as hell. Like, I, exactly. All of them. All of them. But- <laughs> it's, I think the perspective of the film is doing some work to present us with that bad apple argument that we know so well with any sort of police 
entity, right? And and by the end of the film, you know, we're supposed to understand that Will Smith has learned a great deal and learned enough that he is no longer stupid, right? Gene Hackman even says, you're either incredibly smart or you're incredibly dumb. And then when he makes it out of that final shootout, he's like, you're incredibly smart, like, good job. So we're supposed to kind of know that he's like, he's like gotten his wits about him and that there is a certain level of acquiescing that he as a, a an upper middle class man has to resign himself to um and that he is able to dis- uh, acquiescing to uh being surveilled that he has to resign himself to but the reason it's okay the reason it's rationalized is that it distinguishes between the good surveillance and the bad surveillance so yeah. by showing us gene hackman's sort of like benign oh hi friend i'm just here to say hello and just like keep an eye on you that benign surveillance is given to us as the final note so that we can sort of ponder this idea of like good and bad surveillance and okay like we're fine with with this kind of you know invasion of privacy but still he does not work for the government i think that's what would be different today it would be like gene hackman is the good guy with the good guys and not just like because kind of you can still read the movie of like the government should not have that power but you should spy on people all you want yeah <laughs> uh, some, and good some lone don't weirdos can but exactly. not the government so the the other gay overtone that i picked up on uh was with gene hackman because the first time you see the pictures of him in rachel's house i was like oh she has two dads and then yes, i was like, I thought oh, no, i thought this that is 1998 too. this is 1998 I, it is not I, that my gosh so the only thing maybe this is another open thread that they never go back on and it's just that but maybe it's way more creepy is that rachel is in love with gene hackman because do you remember that throwaway line that should not be there to end a scene where she goes i'm in love with a married man yes and she goes it's not you to will smith the only other married man we ever see that knew rachel is gene hackman and they make a point of showing that he's married after all of act two they go back to his house for one scene right after and this is very bad semiotics, the cat is let out of the bag, literally on frame, (laughs) because now the cat is out of the bag, so he takes Will Smith to his house and goes like, hey, this is me, my name is Steven, I'm not Brill, right? Uh, And there's no reason for that whole part of the movie to happen, other than to go, he's actually married, so you figure that one out, kid. (laughs) I fully agree with you, fully agree with you, Gus. I had the exact same thought. Yeah, yeah. She wants to fuck her dad's you know, best friend who raised her. He's she's she needs like, therapy. She he is a dad <laughs> proxy, right? Like yeah, he, he's like he, my dad died was a kid. Like they show the picture. She's not grown in that picture. She, they make it very explicit. Gene Hackman knew her since she was a baby. He thinks of her as a daughter. I totally agree. Completely and that's agree. why it's not reciprocated. That's why she's so sad because he clearly is going like, no man, <laughs> like you. I see you as my kid. I'm not yeah, gonna I raise you. Like <laughs> <laughs> fuck no, Rachel. But like yeah, so but Rachel's whole existence has to be defined by the men in her life. So yes. it has to be like, oh, I really like fucking you, Will. If you still won't fuck me, I'll fuck you. I'm down. And he's like, and then she's like, I'm in love with a guy. He's like me. He's like, no, another guy. But you know, now that the guys are <laughs> another done, guy. I'm gonna just like just kill myself, maybe I guess. But I think the fact that the movie sort of has some of these like open ended questions in the plot 
also like serves the purpose of yeah. like sort of ratcheting up the intensity. Like the thing that I really love about the way Tony Scott handles complex narratives like this one is that he is so adept at propelling the story forward that even when you have those open-ended questions, you're still like completely along for the ride. And in, in this particular instance, I think that the fact that all of the questions aren't perfectly and totally answered actually serves to heighten kind of like this tension that we feel in a conspiracy film. Yeah. And, and that when you're looking at a real conspiracy, a government conspiracy, you're not going to tie up all loose ends. Even if yeah. you find out, find out what happened, you're probably not going to find out everything, which makes this a better conspiracy movie than uh, Conspiracy, I think, with Mel Gibson. Where yeah. he's yes. a conspiracy nut. <laughs> yeah. Where in that movie, everything ties up nicely because it's a Hollywood movie. It has to. But this movie knows that, you know, actually everything doesn't tie up nicely. And actually in the world of the movie, no one knows what happened fully. Um, yes. And, and mm -hmm. they'll never know. And again, to your point of like, it is kind of like a bad actor's inside the good guys thing. I now realize that only people that do bad things are the NSA. The FBI and local police almost never show up and they're always very good and honest. And they're yes. never part. And they're never, never even used as pawns in this whole scheme. Like at no point there's a local, you know, a uh, police guy going after Will Smith because he thinks he killed Rachel and he's just a good guy trying to solve a murder. They like, they, 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 you know, I, I guess, uh, do the the good thing and kind of like make the choice of like let's not throw a hundred characters in this story, but it also allows you to interpret of like see the really powerful NSA guys are bad, but we need the FBI there because the yeah. FBI is not there to fight these bad mobsters, which also kind of ties to this whole kind of anti-union sentiment the movie has. Yes, but yes, it's, but its anti-union argument is different from the one we have now, right? It is still a more left-leaning argument of like the people running the unions are being bad to the workers. The workers mm -hmm. should have the freedom to, uh, you know, uh, be able to actually ask for what they want from their employers. If that movie was made today, the argument would be those workers are better off without a union. 100% that. Completely. Yeah. And, you know, I think that what you're talking about here is something that we've come to find with lots of these 90s movies, which is that for some reason, even when it's the FBI, even when it's federal agents, the police are seen as distinct and like discreetly removed from the government like they are two the only way to entities. solve things is with the police in any of these yep. movies is, is yes. you actually just have to find the good policeman completely right um but if we're talking a little bit about tony's sort of adeptness at handling the story i think you're so right i think it really does help that a lot of these threads just kind of like fray and we, we never resolve these issues and Tony never loses sight of the main narrative. Like there's always this through line and around it, he's building a really complex network of imagery. And I think that we take it for granted now because we've seen so many of these surveillance type movies, but a lot of the visual language that he's employing here that would later be used to the same effect in like the Bourne movies and other sort of espionage thrillers was kind of being developed by Tony in real time. He's often playing around with anywhere between like five or six different vantage points at any given moment. You have sort of the master shots of like the aerial footage of the satellites. You also see the satellite kind of in like a third person perspective as they're relocating and finding their trajectories. You have the observers, you know, you have like the kind of uh, comms nerds like like the Jack Blacks and, and the Seth Greens 
you have the pursuers, you know, the the muscle and the haircuts, like the Barry Peppers and the Scott Cons and the Buseys. And then you have the pursued. Yeah, and 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 that's great to think about because like this is 1998. He did not have GoPros or anything like that. So right. all of that thing, you need to fake all of those shots of like mm-hmm. you yes. can never use a tiny camera in the ceiling. You have to have a whole set and not have a ceiling and kind of prop up a really wide lens, and and it's really tough to get those images. Same thing with the every other image because he's doing the whole zoom in enhance. So everything there has to be film, can't be videotape, can't be digital. So he has to really think about this stuff and. even the the satellite image it was not as easy to get those things like you could probably buy a lot of those things Mm -hmm. but there was no google earth you couldn't just go uh, yeah no so you know i don't know how they got those aerial shots probably planes but like you have to go and 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 produce all of that from scratch and it's well very well produced yes this film i think is just like such a great example of an argument that i've made on a couple of episodes now about Tony Scott and his I I sort of situate him in like the 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 vanguard of like pop art artists right that are if you think of like Warhol and Warhol's insistence on using commercial consumerist imagery to great effect to sort of remind you of the systems to sort of remind you that like these people, this, this Elizabeth Taylor, this, this Marilyn Monroe is not a singular person. She is just an image abstracted and that, that this is all artifice. And when I think about Tony Scott's use of color and like collaging in his movies, he's doing a lot of the same work. Andy Warhol famously used to use projectors on on walls to layer images and to sort of paint different perspectives and and abstractions of an image on top of one another and w- in watching this movie and watching a lot of Tony Scott's movie but per- movies but particularly in this film I I felt that sort of same impetus of like layering and collaging and the abstracting of images using like digital animation or or satellite imaging that felt very pop art, very sort of like of that same Warhol ilk. And the the last thing I'll say in this regard is one of the things that um, Warhol and a lot of his contemporaries did was to kind of insist upon the presence of like apparatuses, right. To create images Mm -hmm. and remind viewers of that, like actually take away the artist's hand and, and insist upon the sort of commercialization, the, the commercial apparatuses that make media that make art and the satellite imagery uh, does the same thing. It, it refers as much to itself as it does to the subject. Mm Um, and and Tony also mirrors this in a lot of his own shots that are taken with his camera that he's using to film the movie, right? Like there's that scene that uh, Regina King and Will Smith are fighting and they're kind of like in their closet. And we have this kind of up high, scanted angle on, on both of their faces that feels very much like it's coming from the position of a security camera. It's not. It is it is the 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 view of the film. It is the view of the 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 film's perspective. But yeah. Aaron pointed out that Tony Scott does this sort of thing where he 
does quick cuts of like leaning in closer to their faces. He does kind of a he does a, a close up and then immediately cuts into an extreme close up without intercutting a camera yeah. change. And kind movement. of like that and, YouTube and, cut. <laughs> yes. yes, it's kind of like a YouTuber, like even exactly. like a, like a video game cut scene kind of thing yeah. that they do now a lot, you know. And, and he's mirroring the same type of collaging and like zooming in that a security footage that a satellite image yeah, would digital have. video does and i think that it, it ties up to something else that i i thought about now that you mentioned the the whole using projectors in in art is that this movie is really realizes what you know american society what western society is going towards because it, it's about these young kids who not do not look away from the screens yes like the first time we see will smith's son and his is his buddy they, they don't want to look away from the video game. And then all the NSA guys who are actually doing the dirty work for mm-hmm. John Voight. They're like, you know, when Seth Green is looking at them destroy this guy's house, he's like, oh, man, that's, you know, that's extreme, man. But, you know, for them, it's just something happened on a TV. You know, they yes. don't care about these lives they're ruining because they are removed from it like the yeah. ops guys are not. And then we now know that, well, we're going to move a lot of ops to that, to being done by screens and by people sitting behind computers because they don't feel it. Right. And and it's kind of and the movie is a lot about that. And at the end of the day, I think that scene, the last scene that they did not need to have with Jack Black and Jamie Kennedy is about that. Like that scene is there yep. to tell you the people that carry this out, that they don't care and that they are OK with just doing their job. Mm-hmm. They're still around. They'll be used by this system. Right. Yes. Um, the same way that Americans got a bunch of Nazis to use in the JPL and, and getting to the moon. Because they don't care. And if you take, you know, like the, the most famous example of people just doing their job, which is, you know, we always heard growing up where, you know, the people uh, in the in the in the in the camps um, in, in Germany. So it's like, oh, these are the guys that make this possible. Like, uh, And it's not their fault. It's just like these people are clearly being engineered by this government. This government wants people like this young guys yes. who are cynical, raised by screens and do not like and. And it's, it kind of fits in with how the Industrial Revolution treated the worker. Like, if we can break mm-hmm. this down and we can alienate the worker, then even the guy who who's a worker in the military-industrial complex is alienated from the job of killing people. Yes. Yeah. I have this written down, actually, that I, I probably not an accident that it's a video game device that's encoded with totally. the murder uh-uh. tape. And, and, you know, the first time we see these young, these young boys they are so fixated on a screen that they can't engage in the human interaction that's going on around them. And I, you know, I think that it's like, this is the surveillance state, right? As you said, like these folks who are just following orders and and the film itself ends up doing this a lot too, where, you know, you, there's, there's a, a tension at the heart of like what we're watching and the way that Tony is presenting it to us, wherein Will Smith's character, the protagonist is in a heightened position and in a position of more import within the politics and the geopolitical like scape of the movie and within the film's narrative, but he's being reduced to a dot. So there's like an element that's demanding that we sympathize and, and connect with this character and root for his success at the same time as a lot of the imagery is asking us also to distance ourselves from him and make him just another position on a map or another like heat signature in mm-hmm. in uh, a digital kind of like space yeah. and and dehumanizing him at the same time and i think that part of that tension might be why i realized by the end like i didn't care that much about him you know like i wanted to see the movie go forward but i didn't i didn't care about him you know it wasn't it wasn't robert that i was like 
examining. It, it was it was the things around him that felt like this just sort of blanketing force that was uh, inescapable. Yeah, and and after watching this movie, I totally get why the Wachowskis wanted Will Smith for Neo next year. You know, like I yeah. I never fully got that casting Me decision, neither. and I was like, mm, now I see it because he's really in that uh, in that Neo part of like. The, the people around me will never understand how they're being played. You know, like I know this, but there's nothing I can do. I'm just one guy and now everyone around me, man, I just know forever. I can see the matrix, right? That's and, such and, a good point. And I think something this, this movie does uh, that is also brilliant for me is like that. I really didn't like John Voight's character from the, the, the movie. Like as a villain, I was like, hmm, whatever. He's just the, the bad guy in a suit. But then it kind of does a little bit of character construction with him. Like kind of got me. To, to like that, which is he, he first says in a meeting of like uh, about Will Smith's character, like this guy is not going to be the last act of my career. Right. Yeah. And so you go like, oh, he's thinking about himself even more than the ideological proposition of like we should be able to spy on things yes. and, and keep the peace through force. And then later you see him at home drinking milk <laughs> uh, and uh, and his wife and a gun is like, you know, you're going to make deputy director. And then you realize who this guy is completely. Like he cares about being having a good career and having a, a, a good looking, you know, like uh, uh, a retirement uh, article about him when he leaves the CIA and goes mm -hmm. like, oh, this guy was great. He made deputy director. He gave his life for the for the U.S., blah, blah, blah. And he wants to look good. He wants a good narrative about him. And yes. that, I think, makes him way better than the, the villain they could have gone with, with is, oh, he's just a right wing nut. Yeah. yeah. But interestingly, I think that tension between the individual and the systems of which they are a part is something that really pervades the entire film in all of the characters, right? Like we're constantly both from, you know, a visual perspective with the satellite imagery and then the the sort of filmic perspective of the director. Um, being reminded of the connection and also the the displacement between this broader global context, a collective, a system, and an individual. And I feel like, you know, giving John Voight's character some of that background is another way to kind of askew or erase any sort of responsibility on the part of the system, right? It's It's presenting us with this idea that we're very familiar with, which is like, these people only make bad decisions because of their individual circumstances. They don't make bad decisions because they're part of a bad system. Oh, yeah. They make bad decisions because mm -hmm. they have circumstances that are specific to them that, you know, compel them to do so, which we, of course, know is not true, right? That's, yeah. There, but that tension between the individual and their actions and their decisions and the ways that the personal is always political is something that the movie doesn't necessarily like comment on specifically, but certainly presents us to consider and think about. Completely. Yeah. And I think it kind of like does that a bit at the end of like, you know, it presents the, the other congressman defending like, Oh, this bill hasn't passed now, but it will pass mm -hmm. eventually blah, 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 kind of perpetuates the whole thing. But it, it, it it still it hedges its bets with like there are bad actors and because there are a lot of them this is going to keep happening. Yes. Yeah, and I think that that's you know one thing that we see so often with things that portray the military and the security state in the '90s, which is 
a, a thing we talked about on the show previously, which is there there was no real enemy anymore, right? Like oh, these yeah. were just these were just mm. bored people. You know, the Cold exactly. War is it's over. It's that idea of like you have to have revolt. But just yes. don't turn it like don't focus it. You know, you can have like the the X Files uh, uh, nerds and hackers like being the government conspiracy. But as soon as you make it too real, too specific, uh-uh, you're crazy. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And these are just you know, the the film shows us a bored bad actor who, despite his ideology and despite the rhetoric of you know, creating a a space of safety for Americans, right? And this idea that he has, right, where he says uh, something along the lines of like, war is is easy because you know who your enemies are. Peace is a lot more dangerous or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. But and he kind of acts like a, a very good representation of the of the of the US uh you know deep state government. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of 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 villains in in movies that are like him, which they just act like the US of like, why are you gonna make me do this? You know, like when he kills yes. the guy in the first scene, he's like, listen, do you want to help and the guy goes, no. He goes like, okay, I'm a bulldozer. You can you can not get out of the way, but you're gonna be I'll steamroll you, right? Right. Yes. Just you know, like, hey, just you could have made it easy for me, but now I gotta go there and kill you and do anything. Stop hitting yourself, kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm like, <laughs> don't you know you're eventually going to lose? Then why fight? Why yeah, fight it? Exactly. Exactly. It, exactly. It's it's that complete hegemony of like thought and ideology, especially when it comes to national security and like the military apparatus of the state but ultimately the thing that you should be doing with this movie is seeing oh this person really is just like a bored shameless careerist you know he doesn't actually care about the thing he's saying he cares about he just wants a pension and like a good article written about him and like to to retire with honors right and we should be saying how many of these one guys probably populate this and also drive the decision making behind this entire thing? Yes, and why are they the guys there? Right, like, like there's a reason these guys not only exist and that that they are the people that get those jobs. It's mm-hmm. like it, yes. it starts way before he's an ops guy. It's like the, he is like, oh, the people that we actually got to raise to be these stupid meatheads and sociopaths will do anything. Those people are the ones we select to come in. And like, if you're not one of those guys, you're never going to be in power enough to actually fight against it. So there's, you know, trying to fight the system from within is never going to do any any good. And that's why I think this movie is good because it doesn't try to, you know, make Jack Black a good guy, nor does it make Gene Hackman one of the good guys inside. He just, he left. And I think that's, you know, at least it's a good thing that the movie does. And I think like on the same point of, uh you know the the malfeasance being defined through individuals so too is the freedom right like we don't ponder freedom on a communal plane like isn't it terrible that millions of americans are being you know shackled with this with this invasion of privacy right. and the loss of their personal it's, freedom it's on a daily my basis. home it's my it's property solely understood through an individual's potential to sit at home comfortably use their credit cards consume right that yeah. that is how we are to understand what freedom is and me and, a and rich the- rich lawyer and my wife will discuss this but we don't care about how, you know, our Mexican maid is going to be affected by this right. at all in yes. our family. Because that doesn't well, She's just me. here to help us when we can't leave the house. Yes. 1,000%. Yeah. 
all all of that sort of like the antagonisms between these interlocking systems of oppression particularly race and class are completely omitted from the film and they yeah, they go through great lengths to remind us that those things are not actually worth pondering because of Will Smith's position yeah there's a, a another scene that kind of touches on that what when Will Smith is rowing with his uh, buddy from work and and a scene that they have to have, I, I realized, because later in the movie, he has to be able to, like, jump out of windows and kind of climb down a hotel. And I was like, oh, <laughs> nowadays he would be, like, doing uh, CrossFit. But this was the peak of exercising that rich people did in 1998. It was like, oh bro, this God. is a full body exercise. <laughs> so he, like, I have a rowing machine at home. I can't do that. But they have to have, you always have when, when there's a, like, common man has to save the day action movie, you need to have a scene that explains why he's fit. Because, of, of course, he's going to be fat if he's weak. But, okay, so that scene happens. <laughs> so and when they're in the locker room, he's talking about how, you know, some kids probably broke into his house. And he's like, yeah, whatever, man. I'm just pissed that they took my blender. And the guy goes, you know, when I was a kid, I did stuff. And he goes, like, ah, every, every one of us did stuff. It doesn't matter. And it kind of feeds into that whole thing. It's like, hey, you know, whatever. Your crimes are the past. Your affair is the past. Because you're a good, rich homeowner. Right. Yes. And yeah. and that break, the break in scene is the second time that this movie kind of teases you with something and that doesn't do it, which is they have dogs at a crime scene and you go, oh, no, they're going to kill that dog. And then they yes. don't kill that dog. Yes, I <laughs> but totally then again, thought that. What are you saying about these ops guys that they don't kill the dog, but they kind of seem to really want to kill the dog? <laughs> They even Seth Green even has a line where he tells Jake Busey, like, shut that fucking dog up. And I'm like, oh, they're going to just, like, snap its neck. Like, they're going to kill Porsche. And then he laughs when he finds out that he uh, spray-painted the the dog. Seth Green's character. (laughs) And spray-painted Green as an homage to the actor and producer, Seth Green, of course. I'm quoting Gus uh, henceforth. Uh, on describing Seth Green as a tiny nine-year-old boy wrapped in saran wrap. <laughs> yeah, that is his, his 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 Seth Green in 1999. That's it. Any picture you find him, uh, any website him. is just it's that. It's so good. It's so good. In your phone was a GPS sat tracker. Pulses at 24 gigahertz. I don't know what that means. It's like a low jack, only two generations better than what the police have. And what does that mean? It means the NSA can read the time off your fucking wristwatch. The National Security Agency conducts worldwide surveillance. Fax, phones, satellite communication. The only ones in the country, including the military, could possibly have anything like this. Why are they after me? I don't know, and I don't want to know. Here they come. You're transmitting. They still have a signal on you. Your collar, your belt, your zipper. Get rid of your clothes, all of them. And then what am I supposed to do? Nothing. You live another day, I'll be very impressed. The last thing I want to talk about in terms of the movie before we zoom out and talk a little bit more about the real life uh, surveillance state events that have come to pass <laughs> since this movie came yes. out. Yes. Um, and we is... want to dedicate this to all of the ops guys listening. All yeah. of the ops guys listening. <laughs> to all of our to all of our NSA agents who listen and monitor this along with uh with the Disney interns who do the same <laughs> to make sure that we don't say anything bad about them. Yes. Oh, no, we 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 must say a keyword from what Jane Hackman said is like the keywords are bomb, uh something else violent and Allah. Allah. Like, yes. As soon yes. as he says that you go like one of these it's not like the other. It's not like the other. <laughs> and yes. it's great because it's a way to show how, you know, this the surveillance state is ideological and is is Islamophobic and it's not free of prejudice and 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 you know, oh, we're only doing this to the bad guys. But it all it is, you know, I think points to whoever wrote that line because it was not something that th- people were thinking about in ninety eight. 
No. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely it not. It totally got through and it was like the one time that it actually says, yes, there is there is an ideology here and there is a specific targeting of black and brown bodies by the surveillance state. Yes. Yeah. But I, I wanted to talk about the fact, as you already brought up, Gus, that like Will Smith is in like very good form here. Like I think this might be his finest hour even. I think it might be one of my favorite Will Smith performances, period. But, you know, even within a highly orchestrated kind of world that Tony Scott builds, and he always does, right? Like his his films are very much Tony Scott pictures. Like they they feel a certain way. They look a certain way. They have a certain energy and movement to them. But Will Smith gets to Will Smith just as much as he does in a lot of other movies. And I don't know that I can say the same for many of the other performances. Like Hackman is doing a little bit of Hackman, but even he kind of gets erased in a lot of the momentum of the movie. John Voight doesn't really do much here either. Like we said, he's kind of just sort of like a a proxy for like, you know, the, the and we the all hate John guy. Voight in real life by now, yes. even right. in 98. Yes. So it's kind of it's easy. It's like, as it's soon as you show, I was like, Oh, a bad guy. I don't like him. It's like, oh, yes. good. This works for this movie. <laughs> Another thing that has aged terrifically well is that John Voight just sucks in yes, this movie. Exactly. And he just sucks in real Abhorrent. life. But he but, sucks so bad that we forgot his kid, uh, kissed, uh, Angelina Jolie, his sister. So remember that. Remember right. when Angelina oh Jolie was making out with her brother? God. Yes. That is Voight jeans there, right there. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that Will Smith, you know, like puts in a pretty good performance here. And, and just like the cadence and the way he like manipulates the dialogue, it feels like a Will Smith role, which is why it feels so weird thinking about this being like a Mel Gibson or a Tom Cruise in this particular uh, yeah. space. But I just... You know, I think it was a wasted chance of like we never got the enemy of, uh, enemy of the state rap at the end. Ah, uh, <laughs> tell know? me about it. This right? was a, a yes. point where soundtracks sold, and yes. they sold a lot. So like, yes. and he and, did it with Men know, in Black. He did it with Wild Wild West the year after exactly. this too. He should have done an enemy of the state uh, rap. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to turn as we approach the end of our time together to actually talking about again, how prophetic this film is about is. the Patriot Act. And of it's course, a, it's one of the sacred texts. It is. It, it is. It's one of the sacred texts. And a thing that Tony Scott didn't even, you know, unfortunately live to see uh, the, the revelations of Edward Snowden's leaks about yeah. the prism, uh, technology and, and all of the surveillance that the NSA was actually doing, which is, is, further validation of the entire kind of central argument of this film. And that kind of gets me to one of those conspiracies that I don't really 100% get to believe that I think maybe I've been, I'm being swindled, but part of me kind of does of like the whole like the Hollywood cabal knows all. Of yes. like, you know, like, <laughs> no, no, Stanley Kubrick knew everything and he was just trying to tell us, man. And, you know, eyes wide shut. It's about Jeffrey Epstein and blah. And you kind of like, and there's enough for you to kind of go, mm, maybe, you know, like the Bohemian Grove, you know, James, you know, Steven Spielberg and shit. But then you kind of go like, well, they don't know everything. There's useful idiots, probably most of them. Mm. But then you go like, what did the what did Tony know? What did Tony know? Yeah. <laughs> no, there is enough for you to go, huh? And also, I will say something that Aaron and I both like audibly reacted to was when they were, for whatever reason, I think Gene Hackman's character is like getting information on, um, on John Voight's character. He was born on September 11th, 1940. 
Oh, see, yeah. see, that's one like, of those. Huh, that, what the fuck? What the it's, fuck? It's one of those things that if you think about it, two seconds later, it's like they didn't know the date beforehand. No yeah. one planning 9-11, even if it's, they were in government, they didn't go like, we got to get it under. Yeah, you know, the deadline is coming up. We got to do it on September 11, 2001. Right. We only have four years. No. <laughs> so it's, I, it's, you know, it's, 9-12 is the start of quarter four, and we got to get this in under it's in the budget. Nonsense. It's like, <laughs> I rented just... the planes for that day. That's the day we have the planes. We don't have the budget for two, you know, two you know, two dailies with those plates. <laughs> it's just one of those things that we're just like, what is going on here? But I think what's going also, on is that it's only 365 days a year and it's eventually going to hit. <laughs> it's going to hit. Yeah. And I also think too, like it's one of those things where what we remember about the nineties, I think is the thing that, that maybe sort of informs this conspiratorial posture, which is that, there was an ambient anxiety in the 90s, right? There was like existential dread that was pervading, you know, popular culture. There was... Because the he didn't have the enemy. Like he says, like the Cold exactly. War is over. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. There's no external and, enemy, then you must look inside. And I think, you know, a lot of people sort of reckoning with the failures of, uh, of you know, neoliberalism sort of propping up capitalism and us sort of not being able to circle the square of the detritus of society that we are seeing around us, but we can't, we can't name it, right? Like we couldn't, we couldn't name capital. We couldn't name uh, exploitation. So we found all these other avenues. We found all these other sort of ways to imagine you know, some sort of like existential oppression or, or antagonism that was taking place. But, but I do think that like a thesis, I will say a thesis we come back to on this show a lot is that movies, particularly at the end of the nineties were reflecting back to us this very real anxiety uh, that we couldn't quite name. And we're giving us, you know, some, some proxies for these, uh, these bad systems that were creating this uh, this sort of landscape of struggle. It's kind of that thing of like it was okay to think that the enemy was, uh, was the the government was the enemy at that point, but only in a broad general way. And you right. didn't even have like terms in the mainstream vernacular of like the deep state, but it was kind of that of like the president is a good guy. Maybe there's bad guys at the NSA, you know, kind of like that. And, and, and kind of like, Oh, the president, you know, runs the, the show is like, mm, maybe not. And maybe the people who run the show have other motives and they have absolute power. So I, I think it, it really fits with that. And, and it's, it's prescient because of that. I think it's just, you know, some things come to light more evidently. And I kind of see it even today. Like, we have to have our faces rubbed into so much stuff before we even start to take it seriously. You know, just look at, you know, what we did to our planet and what we're going through now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, we've ruined it. We've ruined everything from orbit down is ruined. And we like I've been hearing about it since I was born and we were really? hearing about it in the 70s and the 60s. But, you know, for it to become something, it, it goes way too far. And the same thing with government surveillance and all that stuff, especially because, you know, uh, technology allowed it to grow, you know, because back then it was like, what, they're going to come into my specific house, put a camera in my specific ceiling to look at me. It's like, no, eventually there's, they just got to look at everyone because everyone got a camera and everyone got online. It was mm -hmm. easy to look at everyone. Gene Hackman states that explicitly in this film when he is. Yeah. He, he has a, a great sort of soliloquy when he's talking about he's stating very plainly, as I said, what 
the NSA does and what the sort of security state globally serves to do. And he says basically like, you know, when I was working for the NSA, we were doing this, 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 and this, and that was 20 years ago. The reason it's gotten even more advanced is because of technology and because of the way we all use technology. He we says all it consume in a much, it, right? Yes. Yep. He yeah, says it in he, a much poppier line than what I just said, but he does say it. And there's a great scene after that when he hooks up the cell phone to the computer and he goes, a computer ha uh, uh, hooked into a cell phone is a mighty weapon or something like that. Yes. Yep. And you go like, yes. And they gave us all, all of all, us, they gave it to us. Happened. All of us. All yeah. of us. Exactly. Uh, I, I love just like the, ex I don't want to say extremism of Hackman because he seems, you know, pretty grounded in his like a reasonable paranoia. But I love the line after they've destroyed his like copper wired layer. Uh, and <laughs> Will Smith says, what did you just do? What just happened? He says, I blew up the building. And he says, why? And he says, because you made a phone call. <laughs> yes. So good. <laughs> that line is great. Yeah. So good. Uh, but I did want to talk about, uh, the, the real world implications or the, or the, the, the ripples outward that this movie had. Apparently the NSA director, General Michael Hayden, who took over in 2001, uh, after after the election, when when George W. Bush assumes office, hated this movie. Mm. Um, awesome. Clearly, yeah, they had right? no backing from the NSA because they cannot shoot on location. Yes, no, literally, totally. I said that when yep. we were watching it. I was like, the the NSA had no involvement with this. Yeah, yeah. he apparently uh, ha issued like a, a massive PR campaign uh, in, in defense of the agency, stating that he felt that public opinion would be shaped by enemy of the state or as he called it by the new will smith movie for a, for a generation i have never never would have imagined an nsa guy being so on point and and realizing what the real world is because I, I always think those guys are <laughs> fucking removed from reality and yeah i agree this guy he read it he read the room yeah absolutely the well, only thing he did not read was probably box office numbers because no one watched this thing no, really? this movie this movie made quite a bit of money, I thought. But this did it like, domestically? Because like outside of the US, I don't think anyone cared. Okay. I, I Probably domestically not. I'm not it made sure, quite a bit of money. But I, I I but no one talks about it anymore. That's the thing. So maybe their yes. PR campaign was good. Well, I think that that's more of what it is. Like, you know, even even in the wake of, you know, revelations about uh, you know, the the NSA and and even, you know, after like the Patriot Act, this was not a movie that was sought out where people were like, oh, like this is just like Enemy of the State. This is just like the net, you know, whatever right. it is. Um, and I think that that has something to do with it. I think it's it's relatively successfully been pushed out of sort of like the the public zeitgeist and and people don't really think about it or, or make that one to one anymore, despite the fact that, you know, at the time. I think that a, a, an issue that was brought up is people claiming that the movie was unrealistic in terms of the technology and the way that it was utilized. We know now that, you know, some 20 years later, you know, 22 years later, 23 years later, uh, the technology has caught up and, and that the NSA very likely does use it in, in ways that are fairly one to one. As, as portrayed in this movie, you know, the, the, the way that they're able to create sort of networks of uh, understanding of our movement through our, our credit card purchases, through our bus tickets, through our phone calls, uh, using satellite imagery like like it's it's not too far off, despite the fact yeah. that it felt dystopian and maybe a little bit uh, a little bit false at the time. Yeah, and one of the things I really got into during the, the pandemic was really like infosec stuff that I kind of, you know, knew of 
from the outside. So I, I tried to kind of uh, learn more about that. And so like now I have a, a phone that does has Android with no Google apps on it. And I can't use Google Maps and stuff. And I have to use open source stuff. I have a pie hole, like blocking trackers in my... And <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I went to, like, I try to learn some of that stuff. And it's like, even if you do so much and you have a bunch of free time like I do, and you do a bunch of shit, there's still, you know, there's still little things that fall through the cracks. The best you can do is kind of maybe toss, like protect some of your information and, and, and block some stuff. But also just create garbage information. Just have too many e- email addresses and just have too mm-hmm. many browsers and shit like that. Because you're not, no individual is going to be able to fight back through the system. And also, I think it's something that we need to talk about. It's like No one's advocating to not have a smartphone. We're advocating for the right to have a smartphone and not be fucking tapped by it. Yes. Uh, that's the thing. It's like this technology is is not dependent on it being used by the the state, be it the Chinese government, be it the U- U.S. government, or anyone else. It, it just you're not going to change it. You can you can do something like to to feel better about your day to day life, like I did. But you know this this has to change. You know the system has to change. You know. You bring up a a point that I. I wanted to talk about, so I'm, I'm glad you're circling back on this, um, Gus, because if we're thinking about the work that this movie and other movies, particularly following uh, 9-11, but this movie in particular, I think, because it took place before the proliferation of the security state, you know, on a massive scale here in yeah, the Yeah, he States. only has a cell phone because he's rich, you know, like 99, right. that's who has cell phones. And he can Precisely. throw it out and his life is not affected by it. Precisely. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think is is interesting to ponder, and um, a woman named Catherine Zimmer, who wrote a book called Surveillance Cinema, um, wrote about this, and and you're you're making me think of this point um, specifically. It is not just that the film. I would argue that the that director that came on board actually didn't understand the ways this film was helping his cause. Right, that it is yeah. it is sort of normalizing constant surveillance. Uh, for a middle-class American right. life. It presents a, a level of imminence, right? Like as technology develops and as we can, like that there's actually no escape from it. As, right. As Gus there's said. an inexorable quality. Yeah, but eventually we're all going to be at brunch laughing at how our phones uh, traces. Because that's, the, 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 that's how you talk to your friends. Not like, hey, the phone's listening. <laughs> and it maybe isn't at that point, probably, but it can. But, but I think what this film also did was a lot um there's a lot formally that the that the movie is doing to kind of facilitate an acquiescence to this surveillance state and and if you think about and this is a a point that Catherine Zimmer makes if you think about the ways in which the movie sort of oscillates between these satellite images um and this sort of you know global perspective and an individual, the individual shot, the close-ups, the on the ground, the sort of filmic perspective of, of the of the director. We're and Aaron, you brought this up when you said I I didn't ever really like feel super invested in Will Smith's character by the end. And I think that's because the satellite imagery and this sort of like immersing and submerging us in the world of a global, a geopolitical perspective. Um, that is some sort of cyber network does allow us to at once identify as a person who is subjected to that system mm-hmm. and identify with the system itself, yeah. right? 
it make it makes us spectators who have the vantage point of the system. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 it makes us the of... kids playing video games. It makes us the Seth Greens and the Jack Blacks. Like that is what we are. Completely. And it mirrors a sentiment that was already discussed in, in the in the last century was like maybe there's no way to depict war in movies that is not, you know, that doesn't make it look good. You know, maybe there's mm-hmm. no anti-war movie and maybe there is no anti-surveillance movie because it looks cool as fuck. Yes. They can find out everything. They type <laughs> in the computer and everything pops up. Your whole life is there. And I yes. think that, and, and I think what this movie does, and it, it is very much the perception of surveillance that we had it back then and that a lot of people still do even after everything else is that, surveillance is your phone listening to you again like that is a point that people raise all of the time and people and a lot of people that understand this have come out and said like they're not listening to your phone most of the time they're not recording what you say alexa's recording what you say because we know because the french people that have to listen to you already admitted that they listen to your conversation yes. for yep. shits and giggles and i have just one last thing that i wrote down that i really wanted to mention that kind of illustrates how not giving a fuck uh gene hackman was and how much tony was like whatever, man, we're going to work with Gene, is the first time he describes the uh, one of the transmitters in, in Will Smith's shoe, he goes, it's a 24 gigahertz transmitter, and it's not. It's, it's 2.4 gigahertz, and then later in the movie, they do say that again, 2.4 gigahertz. But again, no take where he got the line right. Oh and my they're going, God. Well, we'll use it. And they <laughs> wouldn't even the bother to correct. 24 gigahertz yeah. take. <laughs> It ain't no coverage for that one, boy. <laughs> it's it's fine. He's yelling and he's talking so fast most of the time that it yeah. doesn't matter. You get the point. Yeah, and, like, and it was shot on location on a rooftop. So it's like, oh, mm-hmm. he said he's not coming in to do ADR. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> but is that not just like the perfect, perfect distillation of sort of the, the mechanism of a Tony Scott film? It's like, it's so good and it's so propulsive and it's so like kinetic that you don't fucking care if it's right. And it was made for 1998. No one was freeze framing shit. We watched no. it in the movies yeah. and then it came up on cable. That's it, right. Exactly. Right. Yep. Gus, I, before we, we close out, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, a question that we've asked of all of our guests during Scott Timber, which is, to uh, briefly maybe name your your top five all-time Tony Scotts. Oh, man, you're going to be so mad at me right now because once <laughs> you you invited me over and I said Domino and you said no, and I think before you sent the next message going like, it's either this or this, I went, I was like, oh, let me look at all the movies he made and see which ones I watched. Only watched Domino. Wow. I know I should have seen Man on Fire, <laughs> I think, really? is one that people say is really good. I don't think I'm going to open it up again. Maybe I, I forgot, but like, let me open the Tony Scott Wikipedia page again here. Have you seen <laughs> think... True Romance? No, that is a, okay. there's a familiar name. Um, okay. So let's go. The Hunger. Never seen it. Top Gun. Maybe seen it on TV. Gay overtones, etc. Don't like Tom Cruise. <laughs> like Val Kilmer. Probably going to watch that Val Kilmer documentary today. It's good. Beverly Hills Cop 2, uh-uh, and probably not as good as the first one. Um, Revenge, so far, it's that it's too generic of a title. Do not know. Days of Thunder, it's NASCAR Top Gun. Never watch it. Don't need to. Last Boy Scout, something about American soldiers. I don't care about them. True Romance, do not know what that is. Is that like True Blood? What is it? <laughs> it's uh, it's a Quentin Tarantino script. It's, uh, it's, it's very well good. with like Christian the, Slater like, like, and Patricia like, Arquette. Uh, a, a born killer what is natural born killers like natural born not killers. like that one either so no not gonna see that <laughs> crimson tide is that about menstruation 
Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. The fan have not watched it. Heard good things, especially from you guys. Maybe maybe I'll watch it because I like Big Fan with Pat Nozzle. Mm. That's a good movie. Uh, it's a great Enemy movie. Enemy of the State. Watched it for this episode. Liked it. Good movie. Like it. I like Mr. Scott's, you know, movie making chops. Man on Fire. Heard great things about that one. Then they make a sequel like too many years later and, and it was I not don't good. Know. I don't oh, know. I didn't know about that. Maybe. I don't maybe not. It was there is a, a bad sequel to uh a Denzel Washington movie that uh, that I think is bad, but I oh, maybe the equalizer. Oh yeah, yeah. There was a, a similar se- yeah, kind of it. movie, yeah. Which was one of the proto like ops guys movies, right? Yeah, like po- like past like post nine eleven of one of the first of like actually veterans are cool as shit, right? Yeah. And it was like, no, <laughs> it's First Blood, dude. You gotta remember First Blood. Oh, um, First Blood. Yeah. Then Domino watched it. Watched the shit out of that. It's too long. Yeah. Kind of has a lot of problems. You could have cut out of that movie. Still good. They're probably the most stylish Tony Scott movie I ever watched because I only watched two, but yeah. very stylish. It is, uh, Tom it is Waits the is most in it. Tony Scott and, movie. And what it is, it's one of the first movies of the Mickey Rourke renaissance, and he mm. plays Dog the Bounty Hunter, so mm-hmm. that's cool. He does. Yep. Um, Deja Vu, have not seen that, but I feel like I have. See, that's a joke about Deja Vu. 2009, <laughs> Taking of Pelham 123. That's a remake. Haven't watched yes. the original yet, but I can be like smug and go, like, I don't watch remakes. Then <laughs> the A Team movie. <laughs> Fuck this. Only, only is... the producer on it. Only a producer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I see it now. Uh, okay. Then you're, you know, get that bag, Tony. You're you're totally fine for that one. You're, it's not your fault that movie is going to happen with you or without you. <laughs> and then Unstoppable. Do not remember where that movie is. So I'm going to click on the link because it's the last one. Let's see if it's, it's a it's a train movie with Denzel and Chris Pine. I must say that's to. a great name for a for a train movie. It but is. has Chris Pine in it. Not gonna make that mistake twice. I've watched the Chris Pine movie in my life uh, and uh, <laughs> did not care for the boy. He we you know the thing that I will say about going back to a lot of his films for Scott Tember and seeing some ones that I hadn't seen, it just it left me like feeling the loss of his creativity and his particular contribution to the cinematic landscape more. And the tragedy of it is, is that it, he was still around and still working. He would not get to make those movies. Like those movies don't exist anymore. Yeah. Like yeah, he made exactly. a certain kind of expensive blockbuster that was a standalone movie, not part of a franchise did not exist to be the vehicles for these huge names. It was like, mm-hmm. no, Tony Scott is making a movie and he's getting Will Smith for it. It's yes. not Will Smith needs another movie for this holiday season. Who do we get to direct it? Yes. Right? Yep. So it would be so so frustrating if he was still around. I, I think frustrating for him, you know, like if, if he was still around and wanting to make movies, he would not get to make the kind of movies he did back then. Yeah. Yes. So Domino and Enemy of the State are your top Dom- two, I'm going to say. Top two. And Enemy of the State is better than Domino. I'll give you that. Wow. Oh, okay. okay. We've, Way we've more rewatchable. Domino. But Domino is a way more. It's it has so much more personality. It does, and especially it's, because it is a real story, which is mind-boggling. Like yeah. yep. the first time I watched that movie, I didn't know it was like I caught it on TV. So I only found out it was a real story at in the end credits when you see the real Domino. Mm-hmm. You go, what the fuck? Yeah, and it's so much about, and it's a, you know, it's pre writer strike movie about the reality show. Um, you know, TV scene, mm. and you know, like, yep. about how much that would become so ever present. It it is about the 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 rebels in Afghanistan who are anti-American but not pro-Taliban. Um, it is it's about so much. It's about yeah. making work being washed out, and it's about 
how we f- remember fondly the people from Beverly Hills 90210. And it's a road movie. Road movies are amazing. Road movies and they're rock. great for Tony Scott because, like you said, he has this style of nonstop kinetic movie making, which is great in Enemy of the State because Enemy of the State is one of those good movies that nothing stops happening, right? Yes. The, the first thing you do is you take away your protagonist's life so he has no distractions. He's mm. a one singular focused, you know, driven force, you know? Yes. It's, it's the diehard thing, right? Yes. It's just you and you have to get through this night, right? Which I think the, like, the Safdie brothers do mm, amazingly well. Chef's like, With kiss. good time and uncut gems. It's like, oh, we just bottled up an anxiety attack for you. Here you go. Oh my um, God, perfect. yes. It's awesome. To our Brazilian correspondent, Gus Lanzetta, thank you for going long. Thank you for watching this movie along with us. Thank you so much for hanging out today. Uh, Gus, where can people find you? On Twitter, like most people. I'm on there 24-7. <laughs> and that's the only place I really post anything in English. So so yeah, so probably it's in the description, right? But it's just my name, Gus Lanzetta. There's two T's in there and you can kind of figure out where, but you know, it's it's written for you if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We'll make sure to link to your profile and and uh, make sure people can follow. Um, as always, you can uh, find us at Hit Factory Pod. Uh, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to our capitalist overlord. Her name is Linda. And uh, we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>